So I'll be reading chapter 2, verses 6 to 20. Habakkuk 2, 6 to 20, hear the word of the Lord. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup is in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We here in the West, if we're paying attention to news at all, have been transfixed by a certain set of atrocities that are appearing or occurring in, in Eastern Europe. Um, but uh, we may not realize that these kinds of things are going on all over the place around the world. Our news cycles just tend to focus on certain ones. We may not be thinking much about what's going on in Afghanistan or in Syria or in Yemen or in Myanmar. And then if we add to that, reading history, I'm, I'm reading some ancient Greek history right now uh, from about five centuries before Christ, and it is atrocity after atrocity after atrocity. And so the idea that things have gotten worse or getting, gotten better, it's, it's really hard to justify. It seems like this is how humanity behaves. And that's really what this book of Habakkuk is about. It, it's a complaint. And it's a complaint that we can all understand, can't we? It's a complaint to God saying, God, why don't you do something about this? Habakkuk may seem like he's very distant from us because he's about the time of the, what I'm reading from ancient history. He, he's, uh, he's before what happened to the Jews in 586 when the Babylonians came. And they conquered, 586 BC that is, before the, the Babylonians came and conquered Judea and destroyed Jerusalem. So this is right before that, right before that. And he sees them on the horizon and he's saying, Lord, your people, 
your people, the Judeans, your people, the Jews, your people who have descended from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they are misbehaving terribly. Why don't you do something about your people, Lord? That's the first, that's how the, the book starts. Your people, Lord, are misbehaving. And then God says, okay, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, the Chaldeans. Now, the Chaldeans also are called the Babylonians, so keep those together. God says, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. And then Habakkuk says, no, wait a minute, Lord, you can't do that. You see, Habakkuk said, I asked you to do something, but not that. Don't do that. And he said, you can't do that, Lord, because the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, are worse than the Judeans. He said, Lord, I wanted you to take care of the Judeans. These are your people. You should do something about all the violence among the Judeans, but, but you can't do it by using the Chaldeans, because the Chaldeans are worse than the Judeans. And that, that presented a, a moral dilemma for, for Habakkuk. He says, Lord, aren't you pure? Aren't you holy? What are, what are you doing getting messed up with, with nasty characters like the Chaldeans? And then God's answer to that, the first part of the answer, we saw a couple weeks ago, and it was this. The puffed up live a certain way, but you... If you are righteous by faith, you should live by faith. That was the answer. God didn't explain his ways. He just said to, to not only Habakkuk, but all of the Jews, he said, when you see what I'm going to do, you are going to have to live by faith. And now we have the second part of God's answer. And the second part of God's answer to Habakkuk, the first was, you just live by faith. I'll take care of what I'm doing, and you live by faith. The second part of the answer is, I will do something with the Chaldeans after I get done using them to discipline the various nations. And what he's going to do with the, the Chaldeans is not pretty. That's what we have in this text. It is not pretty, what we have in this text. We have, a, in this text, a series of laments. There are five of these, and you may have heard the repetition. There's a word that's repeated over and over, and it's, woe. Now, that woe is not like woe to stop a horse, or not, not like woe dude, that sort of thing. It's like woe is an expression of, of condemnation. It's judgment. And so when he says woe, other people translate it as ha, or aha, or ah, at last. And so when you hear this woe, you can hear this ha. And this ha is a, a triumph over these Chaldeans who were so very nasty and violent. And now, these, these are called, if you look at verse 6, it says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Ha! Or, Whoa! Now, um, there's a little difficulty here because it says, Shall not all these, all whom? Who, who are these who are taking up the taunt? It looks like all the nations. And yet, when you go reading through these taunts here, they don't always sound like the nations. And it looks like they're generally taunts that the nations are going to, uh, going to be pronouncing on the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, but also the prophetic voice breaks out. So there are these, these it's basically like trash-talking, uh, these uh, taunting, these, these Chaldeans, but in the midst of that, you hear a prophetic word break out, and we're going to pay special attention to that word of the prophet. Now, it also calls these riddles. Have you ever had the experience of being made fun of, but you didn't really know what they were talking about? Like everyone's laughing at you, but you don't know why they're laughing? Isn't that a terrible experience? 
Yeah, it's happened to all of us on the playground, right? Where the kids gang up and they, they start talking to each other and they're all laughing and pointing and making fun, but we don't know what they're laughing about. And that's even crueler. And this, this is, this is, these are taunts, they're scoffings, they're riddles. So the, the, the Chaldeans are being made fun of, but they may not know why everybody's laughing because they're, they're in, in kind of a form of, of riddles. You have to figure them out. Now, um, these laments are very highly stylized. They use a number of literary techniques, and they're very sophisticated. And you kind of have to dig down, and we're not going to be able to do that, and I can't do dig down to, dig down to the lowest levels here of the, the Hebrew, but there are a number of techniques here. There's, a, there's repetition. There is what's called assonance, where you repeat a, a vowel sound. There's alliteration, where you repeat a consonant sound. Uh, there is a parallelism, where you use two lines in parallel. There uh, is proverbial wisdom here. There is rhyming. Of course, that gets lost when we translate it into English. And there is also onomatopoeia, which is using words that sound like what they are. Like the word gargle, it's a word that sounds like what it is. And, it, and there's, in the Hebrew, there are these, these words like that, where they sound like what they are. So that's for the, the literary, the bugs here. But it's, it's very <laughs> highly stylized, just to give you a heads up here. But what stands out for the rest of us is the fittingness of these woes, of these ahas. And they're fitting because what they do is they match the punishment to the crime. They match the punishment to the crime. And that is... The idea of that is it gives us a sense of justice. If the punishment fits the crime, we read along and we say, aha, they're not going to get away with this after all. And that, that's basically how these function. Now, um, there are five of them. We'll just go over the five pretty, pretty briefly and then try to, try to learn some lessons for us from these five oracles or these five pronouncements, these five Aha, these five ha, these five woes. The first oracle is in verses six to eight, and it describes the plundering of the plunderer. You see how fitting that is? If there is a plunderer, what's a good punish for, punishment for a plunderer? To be plundered, exactly. And that's what's going to happen. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. So this one who did this, it's obviously the Chaldean. He's not named here, but it's the, the Babylonian, the Chaldean. He, he stole and he, he buried people in debt. He buried the nations in debt. Now it says there's a turning of the tables. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. So now the debtors become the creditors. And then it says, because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. It's fitting for the blood of man and violence of the earth to cities and to all who dwell in them. So first, first woe, first aha is the plunderer will be plundered. The second one is about the safe house. If, if you're involved in criminal activity, which I, I hope none of you are, um, the safe house is, is a useful thing to have, right? You want to build a safe house where you can flee and get away from the authorities. And the Chaldeans apparently had some sort of a safe house, at least metaphorically. In verse 9, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. So now we're not talking about the individual. Now we're up to the house he's built. 
to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. So he's got his safe house. And then it says, verse 10, you have devised shame for your house, cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. So the Chaldeans cut off the lives of many people, but he says, it's going to come around to you. Your life is going to be cut off. This sounds very much like something Jesus said. He said, what does it gain a man if he gains the whole world, but loses his own life? You see, that's what the Chaldeans had done. They gained the whole world. They conquered the known world of their day, but they forfeited their life. And then notice what will happen with their house. Verse 11, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. So this house in which they rested all of a sudden turns against them and said, he did it, becomes their accuser. So the tables are being turned uh, in the safe house of the Chaldeans. The third oracle is in verses 20, I'm sorry, 12 to 14. It describes the destruction of the city. So we're getting bigger, aren't we? We started with the individual, then we went out to the house, and now we're at the city. And it talks about the destruction of the city of the oppressor. In verse 12, we find out how he built his city. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. And then there's a, a request, a question there, a rhetorical question, verse 13. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? What's this saying? What will happen to this city you've built, Babylonians? It's going to burn. It's going to be brought to the ground. And then in contrast with that, that city of man that is destroyed, the city of the oppressor, we have this, this breakthrough of the prophetic voice here. And this comes almost out of nowhere in the midst of this, this denunciation. Verse 14, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that's, a, that's, that's kind of a surprising statement to break out, isn't it? Because here we are, we're tearing down safe houses, we're, we're burning cities and tossing them to the ground. But in contrast to that, God's plan is not just to throw down the oppressor. So there's more than just, okay, he's going to get his comeuppance. There is a bigger vision going on here. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Let's, let's think about that image. How much do the waters, how much of the seas do the waters cover? All of it. Is there a place on the sea where the waters are not covering it? No, that's what a sea is. And so what's this saying? It's saying the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the, the glory of the Lord completely. Completely. Now, uh, this looks like it's a, a putting together of two verses from the Old Testament, one from Numbers and uh, one from Isaiah. Now that's the, we'll go back to that, but that's the, that's the third oracle. And the fourth oracle describes the shame of those who make their neighbors drunk. You see, they make their neighbors drunk in order to put their neighbors to shame. And so now what's going to happen? They're going to be put to shame, those who tried to shame their neighbors. This is in verses 15 to, to 17. Woe, ha, to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and you make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You see how here they used alcohol as alcohol is still used today to take advantage of other people sexually. And they were doing that back then. And, and here's the turning of the tables in verse 16. You will have your fill of, not drink, you will have your fill of shame, shame instead of glory. Drink yourself 
and show your uncircumcision. So you expose them, their nakedness. Guess what? Your nakedness is going to be exposed. So it's a turning of the tables. And what are they going to drink? There's, there's this cup in verse 16. The cup is in the Lord's right hand. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. Now, hold that idea of the cup of the Lord in mind. We're going to get back to this. But here the prophetic word is breaking out again. And it says, the violence that you did to Lebanon, uh, to the beasts, to the, the trees of Lebanon, to men, the blood of, uh, and violence on the earth, it will all come back to you when you are given the cup. You see how fitting this is? What did they do? They took the cup to the nations. They made the nations get drunk. They, they exposed the nakedness of the nations, and now the cup is coming back around to the oppressor. That's the, the fourth oracle. Now, the, the fifth oracle, the fifth oracle is about the futility, the uselessness of worshiping idols. And this one starts with some questions, and an, uh, a question and an exclama ex exclamation, and then introduces the woe, the ha, in the middle of it. So verse 18, here's the question. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, arise! Can this teach? Can it? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. So this is, this is, this is kind of uh, one of the, the prophets' favorite sermons here. You go through the prophets, and they're, they're constantly making fun of idol worship. They're saying, wait, wait, wait. You took the stone, you took the wood, you carved it, you set it up, and then you bow down to it? What's wrong with this picture? That you made something, it is your creation, and now you worship it as if it were your creator. And then it says, and by the way, speak to it. See what it can do. Go ahead, pray. Pray to your idol. See what it can do. Say, say speak. What will the idol do? Nada, nothing. Arise, do something. What will the idol do? Zilch, nothing. And, and, and then there's this contrast here. The contrast is this. But the Lord is in his holy temple. And here the prophet's word breaks through again. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Why does this end with idolatry? Because idolatry is that which gives birth to iniquity. You see, the first four woes, ahas, were about sin and iniquity. But, but why were the Chaldeans the way they were? And the reason was because of their religious commitments. Because they worshipped idols. That, that's why they acted the way they did, because they worshiped the work of their own hands. And so here this last one is a summary one, and it's saying, how did they get to be the way they were? They got to be the way they were by what they worshiped. And this is an important principle. You will become like that which you worship. And they did. They worshiped lifeless things, and they put no value on life. They, they worshiped mute idols, silent idols, and so they had to make up their own laws as they went along. But in contrast to that, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Do you see? Do you see how this turns the tables here? So here, with the idol worshipers, they are speaking while their gods are silent. 
And then the tables are turned, and Habakkuk says, you humans, be quiet, because God is speaking. So we have a God who speaks, and we should listen. The idol worshipers have a God who can't say or do anything, but they're the ones who make fill up, fill up the silence with their own words. And if there's some irony here. On the one hand, these idols can't say anything, but on the other hand, they deceive those who worship them and lead them astray. Now, uh, these are the woes. These are the ahas. So, so we know what's coming for the Babylonians, right? These woes, these, these ha moments are coming on the Babylonians once God gets done using them to discipline his own people and the other nations. Now, what are some lessons for us from this? Well, the first lesson is this, and it's the most obvious one, and that is that retribution, that punishment on the wicked will eventually come. It will eventually come, which is some comfort in the light of rampant injustice. It's some comfort. It's maybe not the ultimate comfort, but it's some comfort. As we look around the world and we see rampant injustice running wild, we can comfort ourselves to some degree by saying, this won't last forever. There will eventually be a putting of right. This is why we like movies where the good guys, you know, take out the bad guys at the end. This is why we like that. It's part of who we are to, to want justice. And, and so this is saying there will be. There will be justice in the end. The second is this. At the root of iniquity is idolatry, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And um, there has been, among young people, young people that we know, uh, a, a rebirth of paganism. And, and some of these were, were those who were raised in Christians' homes, and they're, they're reverting to, to worshiping idols. It's been very tragic to see this. And what we see in their lives is that when they begin to worship like pagans, then they begin to live like pagans and as well. And there's been a, a rebirth in our day. We might look at this and say, this is so antiquated. We don't do that anymore. Guess what? Yes, many still do, and some are even reverting back to it. But you may say, well, I'm not that unsophisticated. I don't bow down to metal or stone or wood. But the New Testament says that covetousness, greed, twice Paul says, covetousness or greed is idolatry. It is worshiping the created thing. And, and John, at the end of his letter, 1 John, interestingly, says this. He, he surprises us by introducing idols in the last, the last verse. The second to last verse, he says, 1 John, he says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Idols? He, he hasn't mentioned idols in the whole letter. And he ends his letter saying, keep yourself from idols. What's the point here? Any God, anything to which we give worship, who is not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is an idol. So keep yourself from worshiping and following idols of any sort. That's the second lesson about idolatry. The third is this. God's, God's ultimate plan is not merely to crush oppressors. That's, that's sort of satisfying. Um, but uh, he has an even bigger plan, and that's to fill the earth with the knowledge of his glory. 
And we go back to that, that vision that breaks out here. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Numbers 14, Isaiah 11. And, and how is God doing that? How is God revealing the knowledge of his glory? Well, the New Testament picks up on this, this expression. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, and he said this. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light, here's the expression, of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. How is God filling the earth with the knowledge of his glory? He's filling the earth with the knowledge of his glory as the gospel of Jesus Christ gets to the ends of the earth. But you know what, folks? We're the means for that. We look at this vision and say, yes, Lord, do that. Fill the earth with the knowledge of your glory. And God says, exactly. That's, that's what I've told you all to do. I've told you to take the knowledge of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And so how will the earth be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God? It will be filled, if I may paraphrase, it will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the missionaries sent out by the people of God cover the earth. That's how it will happen. And one day, one day, even though it may seem we're far from that today, one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. There will be missionaries for all of those peoples who have not yet heard. And finally, finally, how did Jesus, if Jesus reveals God's glory, how did he do that? And he did that in the most surprising and shocking way imaginable. And that was, do you remember that cup? That cup that the nations had to drink? That cup that Babylon would eventually have to drink? Jesus drank it. That, that's how he showed us God's glory. This cup shows up in a number of places in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah, who was 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 probably just a little bit before Habakkuk, and even a contemporary of Habakkuk. Jeremiah, in chapter 25 of his prophecy, he describes this cup, and he says to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, take this cup, I'm giving you a cup, and you need to take it to the nations. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, who said to me, take from my hand this cup, what is the cup, he says, of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. And here he gives a list of nations. Jerusalem, Judah, Pharaoh, King of Egypt, Uz, Philistines, Edom, Moab, Amnon, the uh, kings of Tyre, the kings of Sidon, the kings of the coastland among the sea, Dedan, Tima, Booz, all those who cut the corners of their hair, kings of Arabia, kings of the mixed tribe who dwell in the desert, kings of Zimri, kings of Elam, kings of Media, kings of the north, all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth. And then it says this, and after them, the king of Babylon shall drink. You see, they drank. The cup of the Lord's wrath was Babylon for all those other nations. But then, after they had all drunk of that cup, the Lord says, and at last, Babylon will drink of that cup. And then, he says this, then you shall say to them, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, drink, be drunk, and vomit, fall, and rise no more because of the sword that I am sending among you. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, who wouldn't refuse that cup? If they refuse, you shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, you must drink. You must drink. You don't have an option. You must drink it. Do you remember when James and John went to Jesus and said, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, we want the best places, one on your right and one on your left. And Jesus asked them a question. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? And they didn't know what he's talking about. And so they said, oh, sure, we, we can drink that cup. And then Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night on which he was arrested, he prayed. His disciples were falling asleep, those who had said they could drink that cup. They were asleep, and Jesus was praying, and he prayed three times, and he prayed about a cup. He says, Lord, if there's any way to, to do this that we're planning to do here, without me drinking this cup, let, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but yours be done. Three times he asked, Lord, I don't want to drink this cup. This cup's not, not meant for somebody like me. Can this cup pass from me? And the answer was the approaching mob led by Judas, who betrayed him with a kiss. And then Peter, seeing what was happening, took out his sword and he struck the servant of the high priest on the ear. And Jesus said, Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that my Father has given me to drink? And drink it he did. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He drank the cup of the Lord's wrath. Why is that so terrible for Jesus to contemplate? Because the only sinless human was drinking the cup reserved for the wicked. But you see, the answer to his prayers was, my son, this is the only way. Basically, Jesus was asking the question that the nations were asking to Jeremiah, do, do, I, do I have to drink this cup? And the words of the nations was, you must drink it. And that was the answer to Jesus as well. You must drink it if we are going to save my people from their sins. You see, Habakkuk was troubled, and we get troubled when we look around or when we look inside and we see so much sin. And we say, Lord, don't you take this seriously? Don't you take sin seriously? That's Habakkuk's first objection. Don't you take the sin of your people seriously, Lord? And then, don't you take the sin of the Chaldeans seriously? And God says, yes, I do. I'm using the Chaldeans to take care of the sin of my people, and then I'm using others to punish the sin of the Chaldeans. But notice that he takes it even more seriously than that. If you want to see how seriously God takes sin, look at the cross of Jesus Christ the death of his own son 
in the place of sinners. And you know what else you'll see at the cross if you look at it? Not only how seriously God takes sin, but how much he loves his people. Jesus said, not my will, Lord. I want to do your will. And do what he did for the salvation of all who trust in him. Let's pray. Jesus. Oh God, we thank you for this amazing message that's really quite shocking. That the spotless Son of God become man, took our place, the cup that we deserved to drink, he drank, so that we wouldn't have to drink it, but rather could drink the cup of blessing. Lord, this is fantastic news for sinners like us. I pray for all who hear this news today that they would believe in Jesus and so be forgiven for all their sins. And that those who believe this, that we would take this message to our neighbor near and far so that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the seas. Amen.